Hello, and welcome to episode 46 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. As listeners will probably know by now, Carl is also the host of the 30 Love podcast, which features 30-minute interviews with people from all across the tennis spectrum. So be sure to check that out after listening to this episode. We are recording episode 46 on January 28th, the Monday after the conclusion of the Australian Open. So lots of tennis to delve into. Feels like not a lot of matches after last week since the first week of a slam is so frenetic with so much tennis going on and then it it slows down. But of course we compensate for that with bigger, more important, uh, higher stakes matches. And I want to start by talking about a really high-stakes match, which is the women's final between Naomi Osaka and Petra Kvitova. They both were in position to take over the number one spot in the rankings. Um, Osaka was going for a back-to-back slam. Kvitova was going for her third overall slam and her first one away from Wimbledon. And we got one heck of a match um, between these two women who are both playing really good quality tennis. Um... And I'm curious, Carl, on paper, this looks like it was not quite a toss-up, but it looked like a very close match. But in actuality, Osaka had three match points for a straight set win in the second set. Um, And she was in control most of the way in the third set. So I'm curious, do you see this as, I mean, was this a really close win that could have gone either way? Or was this this a a bit more of a one-way traffic for Osaka? I see it more as a close win. I, I think whether or not a player along the way to the end of a set had a set point doesn't decide for me that set. I mean, Kvitova, Kvitova's three saves of match points were just as important as the three points Osaka won to get to them in the second. And the first set was pretty back and forth, pretty pretty close. I think Kvitova probably had more chances or and it felt like she was threatening more in Osaka's serve, even when she didn't get break points. Osaka won the tiebreaker convincingly, so it looks like a pretty comfortable set, but she had to work harder to get to the tiebreaker. So I, I take the scoreline overall and say this was this was razor-thin margin. Did you, did you favor Osaka going in? Slightly. Okay. I was leaning toward Petra, actually, just because she'd been so dominant throughout the tournament. And I didn't realize until the the match was ongoing how much I was cheering for Petra. I didn't really think I had a preference, but I was a little disappointed that that Kvitova didn't pull this one out. But I've, somebody described it as like the the happy final of the happy slam. Like it's it, it's hard to feel bad either way since they're both really likable players, I mean, really good players too, um, with with a good story for for either winner. Um. The story. Well, you could say it was the second straight happy final in the women's draw of the happy slam. Yeah, that's true, and a very different one. Um, we had two counterpunchers last year and two pretty big hitters this year. Um, one, I'm curious about something else too, Carl. Since you mentioned the the fact that Osaka had that dominant first set tiebreak, I wrote something earlier in the week about Osaka's really impressive streak of winning matches after she wins the first set you have to go back to the end of 2016 i think to find a match where she won the first set and and didn't end up winning the match and that was against kuznetsova in beijing i think somewhere in asia and it's not an all-time record because of course there's steffi graf and chris everett and martina navratilova who hold all the all-time record and things like this but now she has 61 matches in a row where she's won the first set and gone on to win the match. And that's as good as Serena's ever done. It, it's right up there with uh, with the best of 21st century players. And part of me thinks this is a bit of a of kind of a carnival stat. Like, it, it sounds cool and it's impressive, but it doesn't really mean anything. Do you think there is anything we can take away from Osaka's ability to convert these first set advantages? Well... I would have thought less of it before your post, but as you often find with achievements like that, they are indicative 
of amazing careers. Like the, the women who top them are, are some of the all time greats. And I guess that could just be a side effect and not a signal. It's not, it's maybe not predictive, but, um, it, it does kind of lend some weight to her two back-to-back slams. I would not have guessed that she had a streak like that going because it's not like she was winning every other tournament along the way. So it suggests some kind of consistent performance and also perhaps some ability to, uh, to stay strong throughout the match, which maybe at her age is not a given. Yeah, I guess the, the the flip side, if there is a negative to it, it's that if, if you have a player who hasn't been an elite throughout the that whole two-plus-year period, then she's winning those, but that means that she's not bouncing back from losing the first set very often. Uh, someone in my Twitter mentioned said something about that, that her record in, in three-set matches or her record after dropping the first set wasn't very good, so... Maybe there are some days where she shows up and just isn't in the mood. And I, I guess I've seen a couple of those. I remember something from Charleston last year like that. Um, and that's not the best sign. But then again, on the if, if she always converts on the days she is in the mood or is having decent form, then that's encouraging. And that's the sort of thing that results in being able to string seven wins together, two slams in a row. Um... Speaking of those two slams in a row, I feel like we have this conversation after every slam for the last couple of years on the women's side. That it, This is the first time in two years that it hasn't been someone new. Like Not every slam winner has been a first-time slam winner, but the last eight slams before this one were won by, player, by different players. So we have someone finally who won back-to-back slams. She's the first player to win back-to-back slams since Serena in 2015. She's the youngest player to win back-to-back slams since Serena in 2002. And I was, I was floored when I looked at the, the all-time list that there's only a couple dozen players who've won slam, more than one slam in the open era in the women's side, uh, partly because a few players have dominated so many of them. But I'm curious, Carl, since we have this 21-year-old, way younger than her peers, she's the one player who's managed to win two slams. Like, what do we see in her future? I mean, is, is she a, a potential like, double-digit slam winner, all-time great type of player, or am I getting way ahead of myself just by suggesting that? No, I don't think you're way ahead of yourself. I, I think there have been a few other two two major title winners in the last... Who have, who have reached that in the last five years or so or ten years who kind of got stuck on two. So the, the the floor for how many titles she wins is, is two <laughs> until further notice, even though she's just 21. But it probably is encouraging that she does have this um, – this peer group, not age peer group, but peer group in the rankings that is generally not made up of all-time greats. I mean, Serena Williams is still a threat, still could very well have won this title. Uh, she was so close to the to the semis. But um, other than Serena Williams, her sister Venus is fading in the rankings. Sharapova hasn't made a run at the major in a long time. And then you have a lot of women who have zero one or two majors in the in the top 10 in that vicinity so that it suggests that osaka has some room to to be the best for a few years we know and we've talked about some of the women younger than her who are exciting but so far unproven i just see it as a contrast to the men's game where someone who maybe has won more titles overall than her at her age still seems like more uh, doubtful to rack up majors in the next few years because of older peers who are who are still dominating. So, I think I think that's a, a really good sign for her, but could change pretty quickly if Sabalenka has won two majors by this time next year. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Sabalenka, partly because I'm always happy when people bring up Sabalenka, but also because of one thing I keep focusing on about Osaka is when when you watch Sabalenka. On a good day, you can you can see the slam winner waiting to emerge. I mean, her her game is is there. I mean, she's hitting big serve, big aggressive ground strokes from both sides. Like, 
if she's playing exactly the same way for the next 10 years, she's, I think she's going to win slams. But my point is, is that there are no clear weaknesses in her game. And Osaka is very different. Like for one thing, she's won, I think just the three titles. Like she did almost nothing on, on clay or grass last summer. Um, so there's a huge, huge room for improvement dealing with other surfaces. Uh, I wrote something about her second serve being particularly slow and not terribly effective. And for someone who's already an extremely good and powerful server, it seems like that's something she should be able to address. So there's a ton of room for growth for Osaka compared to someone like Sabalenka or maybe like, like Ashley Barty, who's also a very good player, but doesn't have gaps in her game that you can see her filling in. So that's another thing I think you could take in two directions. Like if you see a 21 year old winning slams with holes in her game, is that a good sign because she could become even better? Or is that a bad sign because those are going to come back to haunt her if, if she ends up not solving them? What do you think? Yeah, that's, that's really tough. I'm, I'm thinking of past examples of players at that age who radically improved or, or even significantly improved uh, an element of their game. It certainly seems possible. Uh, just to dig into your contention about her second serve, though, I, I was really struck by your finding that while she had a really big gap in speed between first and second serves, she didn't have an unusually big gap in success between first and second serves. And I'm wondering if she just puts more spin on it than other players or is more accurate with it or is this a long-term problem even if it was was working out okay for her uh, with the lower speed than expected from her first serve? Well, I, yeah, that's a fair point and I, I agree in part because I made it, uh, which is why I'm reading it. But... Um, on the other hand, I think I watched five of her seven matches, maybe six, and I, f- I feel like a couple players, I'm thinking of Savastava in particular, uh, they they were missing her second serve almost because it was so bad. And Carl, you should identify with that because you've missed my second serves for years, uh, which are <laughs> which are even even worse and make the errors even more shocking. But. Um, I, when you watch points like that, where she just spins something down the middle and a, someone, the opponent doesn't even get it back in play, that that looks like something that's not going to last. And then along that same point, in the semifinal against Kvitova, uh, Pliskova and then in the final against Kvitova, both of those matches she was at 41 and 45% second serve points won, which, I mean, 45 isn't horrible against Kvitova. But in both cases... She would have done better had she hit, kept hitting first serves as second serves. And I know you've written about that, Carl. Not, that's not true for a lot of players, although it is true in a fair number of matches. Uh, but I have to figure that's not a good sign. Like, if, if your second serve is not good enough to be better than just hitting more first serves, then there's got to be room for improvement there. Yes, and I, I guess what I should have said before, I'm glad I have a second chance, is... Among significant improvements that players can make in their game, second serve tactics seems like a pretty simple one. Like if the answer is she should be taking more risk, then really you just have a serve and a serve is made up of lots of different dials that you can turn uh, for speed and placement and spin and risk and she is already mixing up her serve on first serve and she can she can change how she turns those dials on second serve and we've seen players do that before um i think a tactically minded maybe stats minded coach who could say hey you're just leaving points on the table because you're so risk averse on second serve but you don't realize that that itself is a risk i I think she's a smart player smart person i think she'll she'll pick that up I, i um I would be more concerned if every time an opponent found her backhand, she lost the point. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, that, that's part of the reason why I'm focusing so much on on this case in particular is I mean, every player has weaknesses, but a lot of the research I've done over the years ends up showing that players don't change that much. Uh, 
it, even if someone shows up at age 19 or something with a, a hole in their game, like, yeah, they're going to get stronger, they might get technically wiser, but they're not going to become a different player. And yeah, if, if, if you are concerned with, I don't know, Ashley Barty's movement or something, like I, I've heard some people talk about it, the fact she doesn't have anything other than the slice backhand. So I don't know, the, just the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I wouldn't predict her to overcome those difficulties. She has to work around them. But if Osaka's problem is serving, or one aspect of serving, and she's so good at other aspects of serving, then it seems like a case where this is a problem that could be repaired. Um, you know, I just, it would be interesting to to try to brainstorm, maybe not now, if there are some exceptions and, and how that plays out in their stats. And do we have enough matches charted to check? Like two players who come to mind are Borna Chorich in his forehand and Feliciano Lopez on his backhand. And that's just from watching. So I could be way off. But with Lopez, at least it's clear he's he's hitting a lot more drive backhands and topspin backhands than he used to. And I'm wondering if that actually has paid off in some way. <laughs> Maybe he just saw Federer doing it and figured it must be the right move. <laughs> um, anything else about Osaka? Like, obviously the serve is big. Um, during the, the final, the, the commentators I was listening to was the team with Jim Curry, I don't know who else was uh, was on that call, but they were talking about Sasha Bahin teaching Osaka a, a more spinny topspin forehand, which apparently he'd, he'd been around when Serena was developing as well. So, I mean, the forehand is clearly effective. The spin makes it a little bit lower risk. Uh, but I, one of the things that's been tough for me over the last few years with this with this stability or depth of the the WTA is there's a lot of good players and they're doing a lot of good things, but it's really tough to point at individual characteristics of, of players and say, this is what makes her great. I mean, on, on the men's side, it's so easy. You can point to Federer's serve or Federer's inside out forehand or Djokovic's down the line backhand or Djokovic's flexibility or Nadal's defense or Nadal's topspin. You know, we could probably go on through the top 10 and there are some cases like that on the women's side, but if we see a player break out like Osaka has here, obviously what she's doing is working, but it's, at least to me, it's less obvious that she has like any individual world-class skill except maybe the first serve. I mean, is there anything in her game that you've spotted, Carl, that really stands out to you? Not really. I, I think there are a few WTA contenders who have that really aggressive first strike tennis early in the final ESPN flash that they were hitting, they were playing rallies with an average length of 1.8. <laughs> I, I vaguely have a sense that Osaka is pretty sharp about when to pull the trigger. Like maybe she's not taking enough risk as we usually call risk on second serves, but in rallies she she seems to know when to go for it and, and occasionally when when not to go for it. But it's so much – I mean, I, I'm so much more likely to see her when she's making a run to, to win a Grand Slam in the last two than in tournaments away from slams when she loses in the quarters or, or loses in the first round. So I don't have – I haven't seen a lot of her disappointing losses. Um, I mean, I did see her lose a big lead to Madison Keys at the U.S. Open a few years ago, but I think that was a different player. One thing that I think you just touched on that's encouraging in terms of skills that she has and also in terms of what we were discussing before, like her capacity to improve, is if it's true what they said in commentary that Sasha has persuaded her to try a different forehand, that she did change it significantly and that she still won a major with it, even though it's a new shot, um, that bodes well for being able to maybe shore up her weaknesses more than the typical 21-year-old. Yeah, that's definitely true, and and that seems to be a consensus in tennis that that Osaka is coachable, that Sasha's a very good coach, or at least a good coach for her. I think he got he was the WTA Coach of the Year last year, which uh, makes sense given Osaka's climb in the rankings. Uh, and yeah, I, I I totally agree with that. Um, with with Osaka, I, I I was running some numbers for the article that was published in the Economist yesterday about Osaka's victory, 
And what I what I put together was a season long dominance ratio adjusted for competition, and it, I was I was surprised by how good Osaka looks by that number, and it's about the same for the last 20, the last twelve months as it is for just two, 2018 as a whole. The Australian Open didn't make a big difference, but to give you an idea, I, I had Osaka at one point two six competition adjusted for the year. And that was second only to Serena Williams. And Serena didn't play a ton of matches. We don't. It's tough to know how sh- how much regression we should apply, or if any. But she's number two, just ahead of Halep, who was the year end number one. So I would have guessed she would be lower. I mean, going into the Australian Open, she was several steps down on the WTA ELO list. She's still number three, actually, to Halep and Barty, which is a little surprising. But um, at least in the in the competition-adjusted dominance ratio, she already looked like the top player or the second-best player on tour. And, yeah, like I said, I didn't, I didn't see that at the time, um, but it, it, it makes me think twice about the weaknesses over her 2018 season, the fact that it was really just Indian Wells in the U.S. Open, a lot of early losses, not much on clay or grass. Um, so... I mean, Carl, do, do you see her as like a, a, a no doubt number one at this point? I mean, with, with top three in ELO, number one or two in the dominance ratio, um, has she started to separate herself a little bit from the pack? On the one hand, two slams in a row, definitely. On the other hand, ranking points, definitely not. It came down to the last match. Um I mean, what is the gap between her and, and number three on that list? It's impressive she's only behind Serena. I'm scanning her 2018 results, and she has some really one-sided wins, like when she uh, beat Simona Halep 6-3, 6-love at Indian Wells. But she also has a lot of bad losses, like when she lost 6-1, 6-love to Simona Halep in Rome. So I, I, it makes me think that, like with other rankings of the WTA, this one's pretty close, and she just happens to be closer to the top than others than in Elo. Yeah, it is. It, it is a close one. Uh, I think it's one point two six for Osaka and one point two five for Halep. Um, Serena's one point two nine, and it is influenced a little bit because she has the two wins against Serena, and maybe you give her credit for one, but. In, 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 Mentally, we're adjusting a little bit for her her win against Serena in Miami. I think when Serena number four ninety one Serena, yeah, it's just coming back. Yeah, I mean it. It, it, um, it ends up getting counted a hundred percent in a calculation like this. I don't think any tennis pundit is thinking that was that was like capital letters on the marquee Serena Williams. So so yeah, I mean you have to make some adjustments for that and. And to me, I get my point isn't that she's number two on that list and thus she's number two. It's that it, she's number two on that list. And I would have expected her to be number nine or something. The fact that she's even in the ballpark with Simona a year and a number one with pretty consistent results throughout the year. Um, that's what really surprised me and, and meant that she had she was in a higher position all along from which she's now added another slam. Uh, but your point is still valid, Carl. That like it's still it's still very tightly packed at the top of the game, uh, and I guess it's conceivable that Osaka could lose number one if she doesn't do well in Indian Wells. I haven't looked too closely at the numbers, but uh, Petra is in danger too because I think she won St. Petersburg last year, and she's currently in the draw there. I mean, it's starting today. Uh, but I can't imagine she's going to play. Maybe she'll play, but I don't know. Uh, it's She has a lot of points uh, to defend coming up soon. So it's possible Simona could win Indian Wells and take number one back. I mean, there's it, it could remain tight. And Osaka really won't be expected to do much after Indian Wells again until the U.S. Open. But we'll have a lot to talk about between now and then. And I'm curious, Carl, do you think that with... Kvitova's run to start this year and her past success on grass. Should we look at her as the favorite for Wimbledon at this point? Yeah, that seems fair. Um, she, you know, it's five years since she won Wimbledon and she's, 
she hasn't always been uh, consistent on grass. I mean, she lost in the first round with a third set bagel to Sasnovich last year. But with Petra, it it does seem like she'll be really tough to beat if she if she survives the first few rounds there. And she looked so good at the Australian Open that healthy Petra is the favorite at Wimbledon. Yeah, I was really struck by uh, by digging into her winner and unforced error numbers, at least from the last two tournaments, that she's always been a very high-risk, high-reward player, tons of winners, tons of errors. But at the Australian Open and at the Sydney tournament where she won just a few weeks ago, um, she really cut down the errors. And the only time she had had so many winners with so few errors in the past was when at least among matches that we have charts for, um, was her 2014 Wimbledon run when she won her second slam. So at least at the moment, she's playing really, really well. And as we said at the outset, it, was, it wasn't that far away from turning into slam number three uh, in that close final against Osaka. Um, but we've seen Petra fall from those heights before, and, and it would be a lot to ask for her to sustain that for months or necessarily bring that kind of tennis to, to Wimbledon at the right time. So if, if Kvitov is our very tentative favorite for Wimbledon, what about Roland Garros? I mean, it doesn't really seem right to put Kvitova or Osaka too high in that conversation. No, I think the default favorite is Simona Halep, and she is more of a favorite to me now than she was heading into the Australian Open. I thought she played really well there. You thought she played really well at the Australian Open? Yeah. So did you watch the Serena-Simona match? Uh, I have not yet. Was was Simona not playing well in that match? No, I, I was just curious if you had thoughts on that. I mean, she she was... I mean, she was looking... She looked good against Venus. I thought she, she was a little shaky and maybe not 100% healthy in the first two rounds. I think we talked about that last week. But... Um, but I thought the, the Serena Simona match was quite good, and it could have gone either way. Um, I don't think either player was playing at 100%. I mean, it's tough to know what 100% is for Serena Williams at this point. Um, and Simona is still maybe testing her back a little bit, coming back from an injury that took her out of the last part of the 2018 season. But yeah, I mean, it, she didn't look bad, and the fact that she came back from losing to Kanepi at the U.S. Open and, and turned that around by winning at the Australian, the, just the fact that she was competitive with Serena. We've seen so many matches in the past where Serena just blows her off the court. Uh, the fact that she showed up looking like she expected to be in the match and then and then executed well enough to do that, it wouldn't have taken a lot to have that uh, go in the other direction. So if it's not if it's not Simona, who else do you see as a factor in Paris? I wouldn't count out Osaka. I think that she's she's at least won matches before on clay. Like she's not she's not hopeless on clay. Um, and we've seen a really aggressive style work on clay before. Like I'm thinking of Ostapenko and Sharapova and Serena's won a couple. So yeah, if she if she really is coachable and she really is playing at as high a level as her um, opponent-adjusted dominance ratio suggests. <laughs> then, I, I, I would, I would include her as the winner of the last two slams for sure. And then, I guess I continue to name Sloane Stevens. I mean, she, she made the final last year, so that's that's something. And she's she's been a, she's been a factor at slams, including winning the U.S. Open a couple of years ago. Um, so I, I guess those are my next two. I mean, Svitolina, we always mention, um, there's Kiki Burton's and I assume Serena is planning to play it. So she's always a factor for me. She wasn't at full strength by the French open last year. So it's, it's hard to gauge, but she did win some matches there. So basically now that we have a back-to-back slam winner, we only have like eight favorites for the next slam instead of the usual 12. She's really, yeah, she's really cleared things up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Svitolina. I'm also glad you, I wasn't thinking about Burton's at all, but, uh, but she, I was a little disappointed that Burton's didn't go deeper in Australia. She got knocked out by Pavlyuchenkova. Uh, 
while Pavlyuchenkova was having a pretty good run. Um, and then I know we're going way too far in the future here, but if if Osaka is is not really Roland Garros' favorite, Kvitova is probably the Wimbledon favorite. Is Osaka the the early favorite to defend her U.S. Open title? Yes, yes. I mean, I think Serena Williams is is right up there. But yeah, I think Osaka. Yeah, I was wondering how far you'd go before you mentioned Serena. So we made it about eight words. Well, I mean, the finalist last year, sure. Um, probably the second best overall slam player the last three slams. So I think it's fair. Um, yeah, Osaka's favorite for me. I also dodged your question earlier because it had a few questions in it, but you were asking for a prediction for Osaka career slam titles and I want to hear yours, but I'm going to say seven. Okay. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. I guess I would probably be a little bit more conservative just... I don't know, like you said, the floor is two, and there's a lot of players who end up at their floor. Um, I, in, in the Economist article, I, I tried to find players who were as young as Osaka relative to tour average and posted such good uh, opponent-adjusted dominance ratios. It is kind of a mouthful to spit that out. We need a good acronym for that. Um, but, yeah... OADR probably wouldn't work. That wouldn't roll off the tongue either. But what I did find was, for one thing, there aren't very many players who have done that or players who have, have won slams so much younger than their peers. And Serena is one. Um, and the the other three who are at least as young relative to tour average are Ostapenko, who's a bit of a, a warning sign here, and Martina Hingis and Maria Sharapova. And... I mean, Ostapenko's there as a cautionary tale. Serena's there with the, the, the ultimate upside for any player. And then Sharapova and Hingis both ended with five slams. I mean, very different career trajectories and ways they did it. So maybe Osaka will win those five slams and then win 20 more double slams. Uh, but I like five. So that's my prediction. I was wondering if you'd get to a number. I, I've got a... In my head, I was saying five the whole time. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it definitely sounded like five, a little more conservative. I, I, I need to just probe a little on Ostapenko because this is the second episode recently, maybe the second in a row, where you talk about her as a cautionary tale. It almost sounds like she's out of the sport and, uh, I don't know, has taken up cricket or is um, in law school or, I don't know, had such a bad injury that she can never run for a tennis ball again. She's 21 years old. She made the Wimbledon quarters last year. She made the Miami final last year. Yeah, she hasn't won another slam. Yeah, she's probably below the average prediction for her right after she won a slam title. But, I mean, can we... I don't think I'd be shocked if she ended up with four or five slams in her career. Now, that is a prediction, folks. I wouldn't be shocked. Is that a prediction? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's not. I mean, Philip Tetlock would chime in here and say we need to put a number on that, and I'm guessing that number is going to be really small. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, we keep talking about this cluster at the top, and I guess guess it's very fluid, players moving in and out of the the cluster of players we're talking about. Because if you go back and listen to... I don't know, the podcast, did we record podcasts ahead of the 2017 U.S. Open? I don't even remember. But um, at that point, when Ostapenko's success was more recent, then we probably were talking about Ostapenko as one of the favorites at that tournament. And then she didn't do much there. As you point out, she she's had a couple good runs at slams since then. But she's out of the top 20. I mean, in it's it's not that hard to I mean you don't you don't have to be a, a a dominant tennis player to be in the WTA top 10 right now and she's not even in the top 20 and a lot of the women ranked ahead of her we would never talk about as someone who's likely to win a slam like Savasta maybe I pick on Savasta a lot I, I like her a lot but she never comes up in these conversations and she's been ranked higher than Ostapenko for a while now so I guess Ostapenko has as much potential as other similarly ranked 21-year-olds, like maybe still Kazakina, although she's below Kazakina in the in the rankings. But um, 
yeah, I mean, maybe I'm not being fair, but I, I would say my, my pretty confident prediction for her career slam total is still one. Okay, I think I would take the over on that one. I mean, she was ranked in the top 10 at the U.S. Open last year, so it's not so long ago, and her results have been so bad since that, yeah, maybe she's just, she was way overranked then. Maybe she's carrying some kind of injury. Um, but, I don't know, we talked about Belinda Bencic on a recent episode, and she's bounced back. I I, I just, I, I wouldn't be shocked. I, and I would take two or more if you're taking one. Well, yeah, I, I would hope you would take the over on one, because if you took the under, that would be just a catastrophically bad bet. <laughs> that would just be handing me your money. Um, By the way, we did it, record for the U.S. Open 2017, but it was after Ostapenko had been knocked out, so maybe we discussed that that result. Okay. We'll have to go back through the archives. So just a couple of other things I want to talk about on the women's side. I, I realize we're, we're plowing through our hour and have not even touched men's tennis yet. But I was, I was fascinated and shocked, even beyond the level of Ostapenko winning a slam, that Danielle Collins landed in the semifinals here. Uh, this is a woman who was... I don't think she was even ranked in the top 40, maybe in the, the high 30s. Uh, she had a, a good run with a couple of upsets in Miami last year, but she's 25, and she, she came from college. She won a couple NCAA uh, national titles. So clearly she can win some matches. She's a, she's a solid player. But here she is with some, some pretty big upsets, um, making it to the semifinals of a slam. I mean... The, how, how do you reconcile that with the types of predictions we're making, Carl? I mean, if if we're naming our you know eight or ten likely names to contend at every slam, and then number forty in the world comes through and and lands in the semifinal, like should we just give up the whole process and, and flip some coins to figure out who's who's who we're predicting to be in the end of a slam? I mean, is there something I was missing in Collins's game before? Do you think that? we should have that should have led us to see this coming there probably was but it's also probably fair that we weren't paying close attention just based on what her overall results had been by a certain age i mean we got to have certain cognitive filters for i'm, I'm going to keep trying to drop phrases that might not make sense but could be names <laughs> for the podcast uh for cognitive filters for deciding who to pay close attention to there's only so much attention in the world so we're going to miss some and yeah we've also talked about how the wta probabilities for winning a title for the favorite are going to be a lot lower than atp and that makes it all the more so likely that you're going to have a really surprise semifinalist you also had two kind of surprise semifinalists on the men's side so i think i think semifinalists can can just be an odd bunch because of the way draws break out and the way a player gets hot, but you, it's much more rare to have a, a player of that caliber actually winning a title like this. Yeah, I, I, and that's a good point. I think what might be going on with, with some of the surprises on the women's side is, let's say making it to the semifinals requires two upsets, one of them a major upset. Like, I have no clue if that's broadly true, but that seems plausible to me. Like, winning five matches... You're going to get a couple easy ones in the beginning most of the time. Maybe you'll get lucky. Maybe somebody else knocked out a seed. Like like most players will need to beat somebody better than Pavlyuchenkova to make a surprise run to the semifinals. But she did have two really good wins. One was a, a pretty solid straight set victory over Caroline Garcia. And the other one was just blowing Angelique Kerber off the court, which was 6-love, six 6-2 six in the round of 16. So so it, uh, it is a big surprise. Maybe maybe it's just a little easier to score a surprise like that. Like, the real surprise is just pummeling Angelique Kerber. And a, a little bit tacked onto that was another lesser upset and the fact that she won some matches at all. But some of those other matches were ones that we we wouldn't be surprised at all that she won, just the fact that she strung some together for the first time. Um, we talked about Serena a little bit. I feel like we have to talk about Serena every week since she's not only such a, a major figure, but also because she um, is so interesting. There's so much variance in, 
in what she could achieve over the course of this year. Um, she made the quarterfinals this week, almost made the semis, <laughs> came really, really close against Karolina Pliskova. And I think I asked you the same question last week, Carl, maybe the week before. With this additional information about Serena, does it change what you predict for her over the course of the season? We made our predictions of a, a year-end ranking of seven. Are you updating that at all? I mean, I think I drop it a little just because she's not going to play a full schedule, I'm guessing. So not going further is going to going to hurt her for her final ranking. So nine. Hmm. Okay. Um, I guess I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't think about making an adjustment just based on this result because her, well, this argument could go either way, but I was going to say, because if she does end up ranked highly at the end of the year, it will be because she has one or two really good results. Like it wouldn't be surprising if she went and won Miami and then won the U S open. Um, well, this is one fewer opportunity for a really good result. Yeah, that's true. So that, that that's fair. I, I guess I, I was more skeptical than you and most pundits, I think, about Serena's chances of winning here. I was a little surprised that she did as well as she did. Um, but yeah, that still seems reasonable. I think th- this uh, the, the quarterfinal points move her up to number 11 or something like that. And she has plenty of time to improve on that since she didn't have many results at all until Wimbledon, I think. Um, So we could see her in the top 10 even after Indian Wells or Miami, but we'll definitely check in on that then. So I think we're well past time to switch over to the men. And let's start with this Nadal-Djokovic final. Uh, It was number one versus number two. It was the 53rd meeting of these two guys, which has given us so much to enjoy and suffer through and talk about and speculate about for over a decade now. And it wasn't close at all. So Carl, we, we both watched this, this final on Sunday. It wasn't as interesting as I think most of us expected. It wasn't as long as most of us expected since I think it was the, the last time that these two guys met in the Australian open final, that it was a five hour and 53 minute match. Uh, this one was about two hours. So yeah, that's mainly the impact of the serve club. <laughs> oh, don't get me started on the serve clock. Um, but yeah, I think that, that it would have been a, probably a three and a half hour match without the serve clock. Uh, so what do you think? Was Djokovic that good or was Rafa that ineffectual? I thought it was mostly Djokovic, although... When I, the more I thought about it, the more I realized how hard it is to, to answer that. Like, I, I looked at his winner to unforce error count, and it was staggering. I think it was 20 to 4 after the first two sets, and thought, well, that's just unplayable. But it, it was, I, I did agree with the commentators that Rafa looked a step slow and also was giving Djokovic a lot of balls right where he wanted them in terms of speed and spin and, and height and placement. And Djokovic is going to have a pretty good winner rate on balls like that. So, yeah, even those stats are going to be affected. I mean, still the unforced error count is really impressive because he was playing an aggressive style and he was almost never missing. But, yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. Is is Rafa giving him balls he wants because he's setting up those balls? Um, Is Rafa looking slow and not looking himself because Djokovic is hitting the ball so well and so unpredictably? I guess since I don't really know, I should just say it's 50-50. Um, <laughs> what did you think? Well, I, I remember struggling with that question even before I heard anyone talking about it. Uh, I was watching a, a stream of the match without any commentary, so I was left alone with my very dark thoughts for two hours until I started reading what everybody else was saying about it. Um, but I was wondering the same thing the whole way through, because you're right. Nadal looked slow, Um and it's so difficult to determine whether he was slow or Djokovic just made him look that way. One stat that struck me is, I think this was the eighth hardcourt meeting in a row that Djokovic won in straight sets. So 
the fact that that Djokovic is dominating on hard courts against Nadal, it isn't it isn't just because Nadal is recovering from injury or because Djokovic is playing at this otherworldly level right now. Like that's just the nature of their head to head for a while. Um, I mean, Nadal is obviously a lot more dangerous on clay. He seems to be more effective on grass courts, as we saw in the semifinal at Wimbledon last year. But on hard courts, especially I think on faster hard courts. Like, Djokovic just has his number, which is not a criticism of Rafa, of Rafa because Djokovic has everybody's number. But I, I just don't know if Nadal has much he can do against Djokovic on a hard court. Here we go. 6364, 6364, 6364, 6364, 6362, it's just the nature of the matchup, which suggests why isn't Rafa doing something different? And maybe the answer is he can't. But it, an obvious thing to pick on is he's standing way back on returns, and Djokovic was picking on that quite a lot. Um, and, and that didn't seem to change. I don't know. what what You're Rafa's coach. What do you tell him to do after eight straight dispiriting losses on hard courts to Djokovic? I think I tell him that, you know, I won a couple slams in my day. I have all the money I need. I'm just going to go home and write a tennis blog. <laughs> which slams did you win? Um, whichever ones Carlos Moya won. I don't oh, remember. Oh, so you're encouraging Moya to join the blogosphere. I thought at the end Moya had become you. It was confusing. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought it through. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's... I'm wondering now if playing Djokovic on hard court is like playing it all on clay, uh, which is to say really, really, really hard, basically. And we've talked about this a lot in the podcast, that uh, if you're playing it all, you have to just take tons of risks and accept the fact that you're probably going to lose, but take all those risks because that's the only way you can win. And if you look at the people who are challenging Djokovic on a hard court these days, with the exception of Bautista Agu, um, who beat him in Doha a couple weeks ago. We have Shapovalov and Medvedev, who were the only players to take a set in Australia. We have Tsitsipas, who beat him in Toronto. Uh, Kachanov beat him in Paris. And then Zverev won the, the Tour Finals championship match. So those are his hard court weaknesses uh, since Wimbledon last year. That's pretty much it. And those are all aggressive players. Not necessarily really big servers, but players who are taking tons of chances, who are looking to end points quickly, basically take the take Djokovic's baseline brilliance as out of the match as much as possible. And it doesn't always work. I mean, I don't think Tsitsipas is the favorite, even in a best-of-three hardcourt match against Djokovic. But I think that's what you have to do to, to do to win, and that's almost exactly the opposite of what Nadal does. Yeah, and I think very, very rarely we've seen a super aggressive Nadal, like when he's injured but not so injured he has to withdraw from a match. And it's actually pretty awesome and pretty scary. So you'd think at least maybe not at the start of an Australian Open final, but maybe down a set and a break, he'd, he'd start breaking that out. And I don't really think we ever got to see it. I mean, Djokovic finished with more winners than Nadal, and by the end Nadal should have been should have probably been firing a lot more aggressively. Yeah, I mean, and, and I do think Nadal wasn't 100%. I don't know whether it's health or just it wasn't his day, but he, he was fairly aggressive. He was aiming for corners, but I think normally he was just missing. So he was hitting shots that Djokovic would have had a play on anyway, and even missing those. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's, it's tough to know whether there's anything he could have done to really make a difference, but it... It would have taken more than just adding five miles an hour to his serve, which is a clumsy segue into one of the Nadal topics from the last couple of weeks, which is the the new serve he's developed with future tennis blogger Carlos Moya. Um, so I think I have this right that in, through the semifinals anyway, Nadal had added five miles an hour to his average first serve. Uh, I looked at the numbers and I didn't adjust for competition or anything, which could be a factor here, but... Through the semifinals, it was one of his best 
at least first serving performances ever at a hard court slam. I think there was only one time that he won more first serve points, and that was a U.S. Open that he won. Um, he was winning more than 80% of his first serve points. And like I say, I don't know whether that's partly just because he didn't play a lot of really tough opponents, but it didn't seem to be a factor at all against Djokovic. I haven't checked what his average first serve speed was against Djokovic and if the if it was even faster. But, I mean, Carl, did you see any evidence at all that the serve was helping him against Djokovic at all? Oh, God, no. I mean, he barely won half of his first serve points. So uh, I'm looking now at what his actual um, speed stat was, but... Uh, yeah, he averaged his his usual first serve speed for the um, Australian Open of 115 miles an hour. So okay. it, the speed was there, and uh, I don't know the placement wasn't. Djokovic was guessing right, or when Djokovic got the ball back, he dominated the rally from there. I'm not I'm not sure yet. What the and it it might just be that Djokovic is such a good returner. I think we traded some emails about this in the off season, and I didn't post anything on my blog. I, I've I've been trying for a while to dig into match charting stats and and isolate return skill from rallying skill. I mean, it, we talk about Djokovic and maybe a few other players as being really good returners, even above and beyond their being good at hitting forehands and backhands at other times in the rally. Uh, it's really tricky. I mean, there's so many, many confusing factors in there that I, I don't think I've really gotten there yet. But when I was just starting to look at, at what Djokovic has, who he struggled against, the, the young players I mentioned earlier, they are aggressive, but Djokovic has never had a problem against big servers. I mean, he's, he's won almost all of his matches against Isner, against Chilich, against Anderson. He it doesn't even look that challenged against Anderson. So... I mean, he maybe Nadal managed maybe five miles an hour makes a difference on your serve against most players, but it seems like it doesn't even come close to being enough to to threaten Djokovic. That just gives him a little bit more power to to direct back at you on the return. Um, yeah. So I guess if you're if you're trying to improve one thing overall in your game, serve speed makes a lot of sense although it still blows me away that a player could add that much speed at that age but maybe against Djokovic that is that is not really worth it yeah um uh, I, th- I think that's very possible um yeah there's a, a lot of a lot of Djokovic related research topics that I'd like to dig into since he does break the mold so much do you think that Djokovic is playing at his all-time best level right now? No, I still don't think he's quite there just because his all-time best level was so good, uh, which which I would put around the 2015-2016 period. But I don't I don't think he's far off. I, I just think it's a little hard to tell. Like I, I think Luca Puy in the semis is not a great gauge of where his level is. And if Rafa wasn't 100% in the final, maybe he wasn't such a good gauge either. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I, mean, I was looking at the I, uh, the ELO ratings updated for the Australian Open, and, and those aren't perfect either for various reasons. But um, Djokovic's peak was somewhere in the 2300s or upper 2300s, and now he's up to about 2200, which seems about right. I mean, he, the fact that he did lose sets to Shapovalov and Medvedev, he lost to Batista Agu a couple weeks ago. Um, I mean, you can explain those things, and we shouldn't read too much into losing a set here or there in the course of winning a slam, but uh, peak Djokovic doesn't lose to Batista Agu in Doha. Just, it's it's unthinkable. So, so yeah, he's very good and better than anybody else on hardcore right now, but yeah, maybe not quite there. Um, so if Djokovic is playing so well, Nadal is maybe not. Is Nadal still the overwhelming favorite for the French Open? Not overwhelming, although if he does what he normally does in the lead-up to the French Open, he probably will be by then. Yeah, so do you think that Nadal will play a fullish schedule between now and then? You know, every moment that we don't hear something about him being injured and questionable for 
Indian Wells in Miami, and I'm, maybe I'm a little out of date and we have heard that, but if we if we don't soon, then I think he's going to show up. I think he likes those tournaments. And, yeah, I think he'll do his usual uh, three Masters plus Barcelona and clay. And so I guess by the time Roland Garros runs around, rolls around, we'll know a lot more. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the health is just always such a big factor for him. One encouraging thing from the Australian Open is simply the fact that he made it to the end. I mean, there haven't, haven't been very many hard court tournaments in the last year or more that he's been healthy enough to play and he finished every match. I mean, I guess we don't know what would have happened if someone had pushed him to a five-hour battle at the Australian Open. But uh, but at least he completed the tournament healthy, uh, even if he was maybe a little slow in the final. So that's encouraging. I mean, maybe he'll he'll regain a little bit of match confidence before the clay season, and he will be an overwhelming favorite by then. Well, and, and I mean, we should acknowledge that if we'd recorded just before the men's final, we'd probably be talking about how incredible he'd been and how um, dominant he'd been going into the final and how impressive it was, maybe not against the toughest opponents, but still much better than expectations. So I don't think we need to be so, um, it sounds a little downbeat for a guy who, who made the final. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I understand what you're saying, and you're absolutely right that he he had dominated his first six rounds and people I was talking to were, were all trying to convince me that Nadal was the favorite going into the final. Um, but at the same time, like these guys are really only being measured against each other. Um, the, the, the obligatory post-slam conversation these days is what it means about the all-time Grand Slam records. And it, it's sort of like a foregone conclusion that Nadal and Djokovic are better than the field. Federer's maybe a little bit more fragile these days just because he's he's on the wrong side of 35, but it is, it's one thing for Nadal to be head and shoulders above the pack, but does it really matter in the long run if he's head and shoulders above the pack and head and shoulders below Djokovic? I mean, is you know, we all know that Nadal's really good, but does it matter if by the end of this year Djokovic is up there with 17 or, dare I say, it, 18 slams as well? Well, I... I still think it matters. He probably will have won some titles along the way and, and made some finals. But yeah, in terms of just that ultimate number that we are grading them all on, that that would be a very disappointing season for Rafa and a very disappointing development in his in his place on the all-time list. I, I'm not convinced that's where we're going to be at the end of the year. Yeah, I, and I'm not either. Um, and then it's funny that when when Djokovic. First had to leave. First faded and had to leave the tour from injury. I feel like our role was to say he's not done. He could come back. He, he he was great until very recently. He's going to be good again. And now that he's back and great, our role is to say, wait, everybody, he's not necessarily going to win ten more slams here. He's already in his thirties. Things could go south again. So, I mean, when he was at. at yeah, I think even after the U.S. Open, and when I wrote something for The Economist after that, like, I, I highlighted how rare it was for someone at his age to win enough slams to, to catch Federer. He would have had to win six after that, and now it's down to five. But just to say he would have to win three more slams to pass Rafa, even if Rafa doesn't win any, five more to match Federer, that would require a pretty outrageous performance for someone at his age. I mean, what would you put the odds of of him of, of Djokovic making it to twenty? Twenty seven percent. That feels pretty high. I think that's. It's easy to imagine it happening, but I. I'm, okay, what's I yours? Think, I don't know. Twenty. It was useful to hear your number and and have my gut reaction to that, but. Maybe I'll say 15. I'm not sure. Um, what do you think What do you think Nadal's total is going to be when he retires? 19. Yeah, I was going to say 19 too. I can see him winning two out of the next three French Opens and coming close at a couple others. Um, and then finally having to give in to his knees. And then, do you think do you think Federer's done, or 
Will will he pad his total a little more? I think he's done, but I I don't know. I'd probably give him twenty percent chance of winning another. Okay, and then most importantly, if if we have Federer finishing at twenty, Nadal finishing at nineteen, and Djokovic with a fifteen to twenty seven percent chance of making it to, to twenty as well. What is the career slam total for Alexander Zverev? Three. Okay. I don't even. I, I meant to look this up before we started recording. Who did he lose to this time? Ronich. Ronich. Okay. Right. We even talked about that last week, I think. Um, which is a little bit permissible, but still not encouraging. And it was so a route. Yeah. Yeah, that, was, that wasn't pretty. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what do you think something's going on there? We've talked about this after his last few slam disappointments, but are, are we getting past the point where we can just say, oh, bad luck, he's just losing matches at the wrong time, he's still posting good results in other places. Um, should we be worried that he just doesn't have what it takes to win a slam somehow? I mean, every time I say he's still young, Federer had trouble at slams early on, don't worry about it, Alex. It's okay. And every time I feel a little less sure of it. Um, I mean, he's at least, like you said, it's permissible, and he's had some more permissible losses lately at Slam. So I guess that's that's a positive development, and he, he did finally reach a quarterfinal last year. But, yeah, I'm getting worried. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's so strange. I mean, all he has to do is, even just making a final at this point would would end this conversation uh, at least for a couple of years I think but but it is strange that he's so consistently posting good results at at masters and other tournaments like he's still winning titles he won the tour finals at the end of last year beating Djokovic to do it but yeah it is it is baffling um one more prediction then since you mentioned Ronich and I'm I found myself pretty fascinated with his game at the Australian Open this year um what do you think the odds are that Ronich wins a slam? 14%. What do you think the chances are he makes a final? Another final? Uh, 28%. <laughs> so he has a 50-50 shot in any final? No, maybe that doesn't quite add up because he could make more than one final. Yeah, but that's roughly I'm... what I'm saying. Like, if he gets that far... I mean, I guess he could be getting that far against Djokovic at the U.S. Open, so he would have less than a 50% chance. But, yeah, that's those are sort of lifetime, at least one cumulative probabilities. Okay. Watching him this week, I found myself more optimistic than that. Like, I, I would not... I, I would never pick him as the finalist in any particular slam unless the draw looked really weak at Wimbledon or something. But, I mean... If if he stays healthy, he probably has five or six more years to try it, and he can look so good. Like some parts of his game are so glaringly bad, but when he's serving big and he covers so much of the court, he comes forward and knows what to do with the net behind his serve. I mean, it's just I see why people were so excited about him when he was younger, and I think that maybe we should retain a little bit more of that excitement. Uh, but I guess we're talking fractions compared to the other guys. No, but I share your enthusiasm, if not your percentages. I, I was impressed at the Australian Open. Yeah, so maybe that should be a positive note to end on. The Milos Ronic might just make another slam final someday, even if Alexander Zverev never does. Didn't touch on everything. Lots of interesting stories on, uh, especially the men's draw that we didn't, cover but we're already past our hour carl's got stuff to do i'll pretend i have stuff to do i probably don't but eh, whatever um we'll be back next week probably carl maybe uh, now that you've uh, said it I, yeah i can't back down yeah lots of pressure so but by, by then we'll have a whole bunch of davis cup playoffs i have to say i hadn't thought about this until i was looking at the calendar just before recording this podcast, but next year, if this if the schedule stays as planned, we'll have the two-week ATP Cup before the Australian Open, and then immediately after the ATP, or after the Australian Open, 
will have Davis Cup playoffs. So the teams that lose the first week of the season will get to join up again, and half of them will lose again, all within the first five weeks of the season. Kind of strange. But anyway, we'll have that to talk about. There's, like I mentioned earlier, Petra Kvitova might be in action playing in St. Petersburg, uh, already back on the WTA premier schedule. So, And so we yeah. have some mixed doubles stats to talk about. We do. Um, that was on our agenda for today, but we didn't get there. Hopefully I'll have some numbers crunched. So there's some, some new raw data to play with with mixed doubles so we can dig into the gender gap a little bit on um, on next week's episode. So check for that on the Tennis Abstract blog. Uh, watch out for our episode hopefully just one week away. Thank you, Carl, as always, for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. And for tentatively promising to come back next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been episode 46, our Australian Open recap of the Tennis Abstract podcast, and we'll see you next week.